0: Into the Moth Light. Into the Moth Light. Hello and welcome to Into the Moth Light, a podcast dedicated to artists' moving image, experimental film and festivals, and installation art. First this week, thank you to everyone who has been in touch since the last episode, and especially to Lux Scotland and the people at Experimental Cinema for their support. You can email your questions and comments to mothlightpodcast at gmail.com. We're on Twitter at the Pod. You'll find information there on everyone that we talk to. This time I'm talking to film critic, programmer, blogger, and festival producer, Harriet Warman. As a critic, Harriet has contributed to Sight & Sound, Cineview, and Little White Lies. She reported on many film festivals, including Berlin Film Festival, London Film Festival, and International Film Festival Rotterdam, and worked for two years as the producer of the Alchemy Film and Moving Image Festival. Harriet worked in the programming team for five editions of Edinburgh International Film Festival in various roles, including Program Coordinator, Short Film Viewer, Feature Film Viewer, and Documentary Programmer. She also helped produce Berwick Film and Media Arts Festival 2014 and AV Festival 2014, and is currently Partnerships Coordinator at Regional Screen Scotland. Harriet, through her feminist film project Behind the Curtain, has curated a programme for this year's Alchemy Film and Moving Image Festival. You can find a link to that programme on her Twitter page at the Mothlight Pod. I wanted to get a sense of Harriet's journey through her various roles, her first experiences as a critic, the joy of being paid to watch film, what it takes to produce a film festival, and and the behind the curtain screening from last year. I started the interview by asking her when she first became really interested in film. Into the moth light.
1: I think when I became aware of the existence of the Tyneside Cinema in Newcastle and I could start going to see films by myself. Like that was probably The major thing because I watched a lot of films when I was a kid I was a total like TV addict but I was raised on like Mike Lee and Sound of Music so even though you'd probably classify Mike Lee as something quite alternative Mm -hmm. he's become a bit of an institution in himself and I didn't think of it as unusual when I was a kid because it was what was normalized by my dad so that wasn't a big deal but then when I watched about 15 or 16 I could start going to see films by myself I started to kind of try and persuade friends to come to with me to see essentially foreign language films and then when they wouldn't come to see them with me I would just go by myself the Tyneside Cinema showed the film Hotel by Mike Figgis which is bonkers if you've ever seen it um and he was became like a patron of the cinema and stuff and I went to see it and I'd never seen anything like that in my life it was a it was about a dogma film crew so then I like, had to learn what dogma filmmaking was and it had Julian Sands in it who I recognised from A Room With A View because I'd been like, made to watch Merchant Ivory flicks but he was being like a cannibal but yeah there was something um, something special about being there by myself and kind of knowing and kind of feeling like you weren't really in Newcastle anymore that especially because it was probably the first times that I heard the Europa Cinemas um, moving image Sting which identified that the cinema was part of a different network and you never saw that you saw Pearl and Dean when you went to Multiplex mm-hmm. so that had atmosphere to it as well and I think that gave me a bit of a buzz I think it made me my like fragile teenage self feel a little bit superior
0: so if you're at that very kind of impressionable age and mm. you're it's sort of, it, almost like a kind of secret thing that you're doing that your friends aren't involved with. Mm. At what point did you think, um, this is maybe something that I want to get more involved in and and think about um, what you went on to study at university?
1: Well, it wasn't until ages that I got into film, although... I started to make art about film when I was like 17. My final painting in my for my A levels was a kind of pop art inspired Cinderella inspired kind of fairy tale thing. But actually looking back on it, it was much. It was also to do with kind of cinematic portrayals of gender and um, all of these kinds of things. I did these. I got my dad to do these fantastic um Cindy Sherman-esque photographs of me in mask like masculine and feminine roles kind of like in a gangster or a sort of princess thing there's definitely some you know pretty normal like explorations of identity going on as a kind of like 17 year old but then I kept and I kept making work in that way where I got my friends to dress up as um film characters so I did a scene I did scenes with my friends being the characters from Jaws we were all like stupid skater kids. So I did dress myself up as Jay from Jay and Silent Bob. All of my passion was about film and I was just making art about film. And then I kept doing that at art school. So I, I, but I, you know, at that point I hadn't realized I still wanted to be an artist, you know, that was my big strength. So I went to art school and was sure that I was gonna be an artist and that I was gonna like defiantly make a living out of art. I don't know how. Um, But I was always better at writing about the work than I was making it. And then for my degree show, I ended up making, doing an installation, which was about my collection of sight and sound magazines, which I inherited from my dad's neighbor when they died in 2004. Um, And so I've got these sight and sound magazines, which go back to 1953, but also films and filming and monthly film bulletin. Mm -hmm. So they were even, they were even uh, older. And I did this kind of conceptual piece where all the um, all the magazines were in binders. In I'd left them in my dad's house, and I was obviously in uh, art school in Dundee, and I could only fit about six binders in a suitcase. So I did a series of trips back to pick them up to move them to where I was. So this is kind of like journeying back and forward is something symbolic of me acquiring. Um, this very serious tome and kind of sort of absorbing that as more part of my personality at least I think that's how I saw the concept of it when I was like at art school and then I documented their arrival um, in Dundee by taking Polaroids of them like stacking up and then the the collection um, accumulating and you know I was like inspired by artists like Mark Dion and um Sophie Carl in terms of like documenting their lives and and acquiring collections and kind of interrogating that sort of stuff and then it became an installation for my degree show where I displayed all of the sight and sounds on one long shelf and um made a piece where I indexed all of the sight and sounds from 1953 to 2004 which is when it was um by noting every instance in that entire period when um my family's favorite films occurred Mm -hmm. so i surveyed my family got them to tell me their five favorite films and their favorite director and then for every instance of that created an index card record of it so i ended up with two boxes of index cards documenting sort of i don't know those filmmakers making their work and it being noted throughout the history of sight and sound alongside the instances when there were kind of like family moments. So my mom being born, my dad being born, my sisters being born, my parents divorce, the cat coming into their lives, <laughs> like um, all these kinds of things, kind of significant life moments. So it was like a kind of about parallel timelines, you know, how you know the things that mark our our identities out are existing outside of us but mm-hmm. we use them to mark the points in our lives lots of well and they they come to kind of be part of our memory of ourselves basically mm-hmm. so i was making work about film and then when i finished art school i was like still thinking oh maybe i'll be an artist but then um it was my partner john who said to me but well, yeah but what do you really want to do And when I really thought about it, I thought about running a cinema and I had this great vision of like running a little cinema, it's going to be really small and it was going to sell film books and like be a DVD rental place. It was like a really quaint, lovely fantasy in my head. But I realized that that's what, that's what I wanted to do. I didn't actually like the idea of having to like paint and sell them and be an artist and explain my work to people. Like actually that made me exhausted. (laughs) didn't want to do it but the idea of showing films to people Mm -hmm. i was like well i want to do that so then i then that was the beginning of properly starting to do it into the moth light
0: into the moth light At what point did you think um, that you wanted to kind of share your views on a particular film with a, with a wider public, you know, put pen to paper and actually mm-hmm. give your views on, on what you were seeing in front of you? What, what was the kind of lead up to that? And can you remember the first review that you, you mm-hmm. put together?
1: Um, yeah, I think so. I was really hesitant about writing reviews. I didn't really want to do it for ages. And when I was doing my master's in film at Edinburgh, um, a few of my fellow students were already sort of writing reviews on their own blogs. One of them was writing stuff for The Skinny. Um, I was a film editor for The Skinny, actually. A really busy person. Um, but I didn't like it because I hated the way that reviews always seemed to follow a particular structure. And the it was always that thing of, if I have to like describe the plot of a film and then what's good about it I just I just can't imagine anything more boring than that <laughs> um that just seems like such a such a sort of mundane way of engaging with a film but obviously that's kind of what people want to read if you're talking about reviewing a film or you're trying to make a recommendation as to whether someone should go and see it or not anyway I finished my masters and I thought oh, I need to I'd always been told I'd been told by um, a person who gave me a break in Dundee and gave me like a small season of um, a film club at the, the DCA, she was like, "Oh, if you want to be a programmer, then you need to be a critic. All programmers, most programmers start out as critic. They all start writing about films. You've got to, you've got to be like sharing your opinion." So I was like, "Right, okay." And so when I finished my masters, I started my blog and tried to bring like the film theory, film theory academic side together with writing about stuff and i think one of the th- first things i did though was it was actually about the tv show spaced mm-hmm. which i'd loved i'd had this idea which i used to talk about when i was at my, doing my masters that if i ever did a phd it would be about um representations of the slacker in cinema and what's good is that i didn't have to do that because loads of people started writing about that <laughs> and what's really good is that people started writing about female slackers which was going to be my angle so happily I didn't have to do that but I did a piece about spaced and kind of apathy and how great the tv show it is and it was like almost diaristic because it was like you know I'm finished a master's and I'm back into the world again and what the hell am I gonna do but then my first proper review was Attenberg the um Greek film that was when I finally gave in and was like this is what happens in the plot and this is why it's good and here's my summary of the film and I found it really hard, but then when I'd done it and I shared it with some people, because by then I was, had worked at EIFF, people who I respected, like read it and said, "Well done," and then that felt really good. So I was like, "Oh, maybe I'll keep doing it." So I kept that up for a while.
0: Mm-hmm. So you you mentioned um, EIFF. Mm-hmm. So what was the what was the inroad there for you, and how 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 did things? Progress. What did you learn from from being involved with that particular body?
1: Mm. That was just one of the most positive experiences I've ever had. I mean, I volunteered while I was doing my master's. I did like a bit of stuff on the industry side and they used to have a great volunteer role called audience reporters, which they stopped doing the year after I was an audience reporter, mm-hmm. which is where they used to be able to do a thing where um, they would... Send volunteers to make notes about the demographic and reaction of an audience to a film and then they would do a summary report of that to to give the distributor Mm -hmm. if especially useful if the film is a world premiere because it's kind of like having a test audience so I got to do that and I got to see that was a great job because you got to see the most number of films officially in your role Mm -hmm. all the other roles sort of involved you had to see films around what you were doing whereas that job was the whole point of it was you were going to be seeing movies as part of your. Also, it was the best thing, and I met some great people doing that. And then I got to do a placement the next year in the program team, which used to be called the screenings team, um, and that was just a great, a great experience. Um, I had a really good mentor and the program manager there, a guy called James Rice. That was the first time I was around people who like where it was part of our job to talk about films mm-hmm. while we were at work. And where I sort of felt normal, that I wasn't like this, like, even though I'd done the masters in that was an academic context. So everyone was studying it and they were all so, you know, um, intellectually leaning. They were trying to figure films out and understand filmmakers and get inside their minds. And, and they thought of films as like puzzles that you have to solve. That was the element of film theory that on that course whereas this was like putting it all into practice and the aim of showing films to people and having such you know caring about what an audience felt about a film and making sure it was the best possible experience for an audience there was so the whole experience there was about picking the best films and then making sure that the presentation of it is absolutely spot on
0: can you remember when you first started to identify yourself as a programmer and how it felt to offer that to to the public and and what the reaction was like
1: i think it's happened quite late because when i was at eiff i did submissions viewing i did shorts first of all which was great because it turned out that i the stuff that i really liked the programmer really liked as well so that was obviously we were watching subs submissions and we were making recommendations for the program but that didn't mean that stuff we like automatically went in it was still checked by the, the short film program and that was the case when I did features as well did that feature fiction I should say and then um, in 2016 I had a role as a documentary programmer so that was having a little bit more influence on the program but it and that was the year that um, Mark Adams became the artist director. And he was really open to people in the team making a recommendation and taking that recommendation. And he was very trusting of the wider team. So it was quite good to be able to say, I really like this. Let's go with it. But I didn't feel still sort of much autonomy over it. It was still, I'll recommend this, and then it'll get picked up by a senior programmer. So even though you're more presenting a film to an audience then as like, i was part of the team decision Mm -hmm. to show this film Mm -hmm. um where you're still sort of cushioned by the organization um in terms of it no you're not really striking out and saying i chose this so i don't think i really felt like a proper programmer where i chose a film by myself and hadn't asked anybody else for their opinion until i did a program at the edinburgh film guild my friend was involved and they were like interested in having new programs and he really wanted to make it um you know have new voices in the guild and everything and so I did a program a season of uh, I think it was six films and I'd what was good is that I'd earlier in that year I'd been to Rotterdam International Film Festival for the first time so I picked two films that I'd seen there I had a really good relationship with the distributor second run DVD because I'd been reviewing films from their D V D catalogue for several years before that. Um so I had one of their films. I think I picked a film that I'd seen at Aesthetica Short Film Festival as well and or two films by the same filmmaker and put that in a programme. And I felt really nervous about it. And I had a theme, it was called Local Locale, you know, it was about trying to sort of situate something geographical, um, and local, and was trying to use the word local to really mean like personal, a personal identity, like your immediate locality. You know, like what's what's physically around you that makes up who you are. So it was kind of reaching a little bit. I felt like it was enough of a risk at that time. Mm-hmm. I was like, yeah, I right, definitely. um And I knew I knew it was going kind to of have a small audience. It was low risk, but it still felt like like I was a bit nervous about it. It was only a thirty seat cinema within the film house building Mm -hmm. and i knew that probably i wouldn't get very large numbers for it which proved to be the case you know but it was fine like i had to write all the copy pick all the films and do all the rights negotiations all of Mm -hmm. that stuff Mm -hmm. by myself and then i think i was proud because another a programmer that i had um respect from london film festival um made a comment that they thought my program looked really good and so they're like oh approval you know (laughs) you're like you know you try to have convictions and just think that you've done a good job but then when someone you respect tells you that you're good then it just you know it's so much better than trying to just have self-confidence
0: let's jump forward to the alchemy film festival so the first time i met you um Mm. was when you came on board as a producer Mm -hmm. for the festival what was it about Alchemy? For um, you decided, okay, I would like to produce this festival. Mm. What was the attraction for you?
1: Um, the attraction was I came to the festival in 2015 as a critic. Um, I pitched covering the festival to Sight & Sound. They had never covered... The festival before and um, I heard about it from a couple of years earlier when there was a piece in the skinny about it specifically when the screen the screening room was called the dreaming room and I'd remembered that and how unique it was so I came to the festival it was like very different to a festival I'd been to before yeah the welcome I got from every venue that I went to where the installations were uh, all the kind of volunteers who were there were so happy to see me and Uh, wanted to talk to me and it kind of felt like a secret that a small number of people in the town knew about. The thing that really solidified it for me though was I went um, on the Sunday instead of going to a screening I walked up the hill to the cemetery that's like up behind um yeah the cemetery that's at the top of the hill. I went up there and it was like a glorious day in mid-April and it was really um really beautiful and then i could see the whole of hoik um and i just thought how is the film festival happening right now in this town in this landscape it's absolutely gorgeous <laughs> um and i thought god it'd be really imagine if you could be work for a film festival and live in a setting like that that would be amazing
0: <laughs>
1: and that was that was april 2015 and then in december that year the job role came up mm-hmm. and i was like yep I'm going to go for that one. That seems like some sort of sign.
0: Into the Moth Light You are listening to Into the Moth Light and in this edition an interview with film critic, programmer, blogger and festival producer Harriet Warman. Into the Moth Light I know from, from Alchemy as a as a volunteer and a filmmaker and um, a, a, a audience member, mm. I've experienced it in all kinds of different ways and it is an amazing thing, but boy, it's hard work mm. for, for the, 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 the months and then the days and the hours running up to it. How, how does it feel to kind of hold all of that together? Mm.
1: How is it How does it feel? Okay, so I'm like specifically not going to, tell you like how I do it because that was while you were talking I was thinking like oh yeah the answer is I use spreadsheets and pay meticulous attention to detail and I take nothing for granted (laughs) but that would be the answer to the question like how do you do it Mm -hmm. which is not what you've asked me you've asked me how does it feel I don't know at times it's like utterly exhausting Mm -hmm. but there was something definitely kind of um exhilarating about the challenge um so I think I felt like the first time I did it in twenty sixteen was in such a um short period of time, like you know, in hindsight, I have literally no idea how I did it. I I had a meeting in I had a day of work in January and then I wasn't supposed to start till mid Feb. And in between that I went to Rotterdam and Berlin and I came back and then I had almost exactly two months to deliver the festival. And a lot of the work had already been done by then. By amazing people, so I think I was like consistently impressed by the fact that there were the people around who were already making efforts in some of a big like kind of volunteer capacity because they really really cared about it. So that kept kept me going a lot to know that there was so much uh, care already being put into it. But it feels it's like nothing else really, I don't think when you're on a time limited project. You're at the same time really looking forward to the finishing line because all of the pieces of work and all of the moving pieces coming together are supposed to culminate in this great event and you want it to be the best thing possible. And so you want to do a good job for your own satisfaction um, to kind of prove to yourself that you can. And you also want to do a good job because you care about the reputation of the organization you're working for. Mm -hmm. And so those two things kind of marry together and you want to do a good job because really loved the film so I did I loved in the first year I didn't really get to see many of the films so it was more a principle of well these filmmakers have made great works and we're going to show them we want to make sure they have um, a great experience here in the second year I really got a hand in the program so I was really excited about the audience seeing the films as well and and seeing whether if they loved them as much as I did so there's that kind of mix of you know wanting to do a good job feeling kind of proud of the work that you're doing and also just trying to keep it going you know keep a voice inside your head saying this is worth it
0: let's finally talk about um your most recent project um behind the curtain Mm. and um I I could explain what it was about but it's probably Mm. better to come from from you so kind of Mm. pitch that to us to give us a a bit of background and an understanding of what Mm -hmm. you set out to do there
1: Mm -hmm. well I've actually been in a process of rewriting the vision and mission statement for Behind the Curtain, so um, it's evolved since it originally came into my head. So now I definitely describe Behind the Curtain as a feminist film project, and that by its very nature, because the point is to screen films which would otherwise be overlooked or which are basically counter to a sort of heteronormative, you know, capitalist, Uh, structures and processes and that the program will always kind of pioneer the work of women and people of color and LGBT people and deaf and disabled filmmakers and screenworks that are experimental or extremely low budget or um, kind of working in innovative ways all the time to like expand the definition of what cinema is, that by doing that it's inherently feminist because it's trying to um, represent what's actually going on with cinema, which is that a bunch of extremely different people are making films in in amazingly different ways. Um, and we should be able to see those film works. And even though I have an eclectic taste in cinema and I like superhero movies, we, there probably won't be superhero movies in behind the curtain because it doesn't exist just to demonstrate um, the eclecticism of my taste in cinema—it has a bit more of an imperative to that, to actually trying to reveal something about ourselves as humans that you you don't get to see in kind of uh, kind of standard narrative mm-hmm. uh, features, and that's kind of the point, I think, because um, there was almost like a kind of um, well-being imperative behind it as well, mm-hmm. which is we never get to identify with the kind of experiences in cinema. Representing who we actually are, then that's you know that's not good for our well-being, and we have to be able to see yourself on screen. Representation matters, so that's the kind of imperative for that as well. All of this stuff is stuff that I've kind of evolved the thinking around. Really, last year it was um, a project to to bring some films to the borders that wouldn't ordinarily get seen, and it was from a loose idea of well, there are films that kind of slip between notions of being either experimental or being art house or non-mainstream. And these are kind of terms which are kind of used in a sort of binary as though there's mainstream and non-mainstream and then there's the things in between. It's the stuff that is in between that is hard to categorise. And so I wanted to show films like that. I wanted to show um, the choices of like other programmers that I admire. So that was important. So it wasn't just um, my choices. It was kind of bringing other people's ideas into the mix as well.
0: So this was... A project of yours where you had sort of mm. full control, mm-hmm. so you weren't accountable to anyone else. Yeah. You didn't have anyone else uh, endorsing or or vetoing any of your mm. creative decisions. Mm. So, what what was your your process to identify and bring together your final list of films that you wanted to see? You know, apart from the programmers that you had brought in to kind of um, mm. share their views.
1: I don't think I could have gone into programming a season of films thinking that it would be the only one that I would do.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Because essentially, even though I've described kind of lots of imperatives and, and rationale behind doing behind the curtain, it's actually extremely broad what I'm talking about. And so essentially, there's all the films ever made it could be chosen. <laughs> and that's crippling. hmm in terms of like trying to make a decision but I think I tried to first of all just think about filmmakers that I wanted to show and then think well which of their films would be good because that helped to narrow things down a little bit so I wanted to make sure I showed enough films by women and pick out stuff that maybe I hadn't been able to see because of being in a a more kind of rural context and so those ideas okay well what hasn't shown in the borders and what would I have liked to have seen in the past couple of years that I haven't been able to see so You know, I know, like, No Home Movie, the Chantal Ackerman film, had such... It seemed to be on my radar constantly in the last... The second half of 2015, when Ackerman sadly died and there was a retrospective um, of her work uh, done by the collective Anno that was touring around everywhere. You know, it couldn't... It didn't come here. So I knew that I wanted to do that equally. Vera Hitilova's films had kind of come up in screenings uh, as part of Scalarama, I hadn't managed to to see them in any cinemas, so I wanted to make sure that one of her films was around, because it was almost like, what have I missed out on because of life and different reasons, but who are these important filmmakers, and let's bring them here. The first point, I think, was programming for myself, and then thinking outside of that whether that will really work or not within Mm -hmm. this particular context, and then trying not to worry too much about that, because otherwise I just wouldn't do it at all. And going back to okay, well, let's just imagine that I'm in the audience, and what do I want to see? So it's kind of oscillating between different states, you know, trying to keep the audience in mind whilst trying not to deviate too much from just making a decision, I suppose. Yeah, I yeah.
0: understand that. From all the festivals that you've been involved with and, and screenings, and in one capacity or another, what what's the one that's maybe stuck in your mind and, and stayed with you?
1: Well, it's hard to be one. That's just. I mean, (laughs) an obscene question, quite frankly. It's a good
0: one to end on.
1: Well, yeah. Yeah. So, one, um, Alchemy Gail Rouard um, is just an amazing filmmaker. And, like, getting to work with her and produce her expanded cinema events for two years in a row was just such a special thing. I think that just made my festival both times. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, when I was talking about how it makes you feel. Um, The first time I produced Alchemy in 2016, I hadn't met Gail yet, Um, so I was trying to fulfill, you know, the criteria that she needed and the the situation that she needed for the performance to go well. You know, we did the best that we could. We had an imperfect venue. Her performance was amazing and the film was fantastic, but we did have to overcome an issue with an imperfect venue, which she was disappointed with, which was a shame. And I had to be the person to tell her that we weren't going to be able to do things in this perfect way, mm-hmm. which was a really uh, challenge challenging thing to do as a producer to sort of disappoint an artist and then to be able to kind of bring them back up again to carry on with the show almost. And I think nobody really experienced the performance at any less than they imagined it would be because they had no idea what was going on behind the scenes but she was so magical as a person and so warm and and a lovely person and then we got to bring her back to the festival the next year and get everything right which was absolutely fantastic and it was just so wonderful to bring her back and feel like you kind of create a bond sort of with an artist when you're the producer and you get to work closely with them and realize what it is because you have to care so much about just making the conditions right for them to feel comfortable to do what they do Mm -hmm. and if you get that right the kind of I don't know the relationship you get in that bond it's a mutual respect I felt like I'd got her respect which was very it was just it was a very moving experience to feel like somebody who was as skilled an artist as Gail was respecting me and that I got things right that was amazing
0: Harriet, you're a fascinating individual, and it's been a pleasure to spend some time with you today. Thanks for coming onto our podcast.
1: Yeah, you're very, very welcome. Thank you for asking me questions like that. <laughs> Into the Mothlight is a Charles S. Bravo production. You can follow us on Twitter at the Mothlight Pod. Email your questions and comments to mothlightpodcast at gmail.com or find us on Facebook at podcast. Like us, rate and review us wherever you find your podcasts. This podcast isn't sponsored by anyone. Perhaps you can do something about that. Until next time, goodbye.